Hello podcast listeners, welcome to Stay Humble Podcast. Today's guest, Simon Raybold, is a specialist in presentation and vocal skills coach. Simon recently delivered a talk at TEDx Imagine a World event at Newcastle University. In this episode, Simon talks about the experience of recording a TEDx talk virtually. We discuss various techniques to improve people's presentation skills when interviewing for jobs. And finally, Simon shares how people can be emotionally resilient from bad news or rejection. Please share and subscribe to the podcast. Now it's time to stay humble with Simon Raybold. Simon Raybold, welcome to Stay Humble Podcast. How are you feeling today? I'm doing well, actually, mate. I've really enjoyed the sun. I was out for a cycle ride yesterday, and I've just taken half an hour out this afternoon as well, just to chill out a little bit. And I've, um, yeah, I'm I'm in a good place just right now. No, that's really good to hear, Simon. And firstly, I obviously wanted to discuss is about your recent um, presentation for TEDx. I recently received this actually yesterday, which is a badge from it, which you presented during the Imagine a World talk. Um, how did this opportunity come about to work on TEDx? I should point out that I've not sent the badges. That you know, the, the, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's from the TEDx team. It's nothing to do with me. It came about because Ash Ashley, the person who owns the the kind of the franchise rights for TEDx Newcastle University, uh, she put out a call maybe two years ago, perhaps, for people who were interested. Um, there's an audition process. You send a couple of videos. She and the team go through them. They decide what they want to do. They curate it. Um, and their process is a is a filtering one of um, do they think you're going to be able to cut the mustard on stage, and do they think people are going to be interested in what you're telling them because it has to fit into the theme of the uh, of the conference, and everything was going swimmingly, and then all of a sudden, bam, pandemic, and uh, everything just disappears into the ether. Uh, so the actual gig got postponed by a year and um, and went virtual. So we were expecting to be working in a room full of people and we suddenly found ourselves working in a room full of cameras, which is a completely different experience. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like, what, what was it? What did it feel like just being able to speak to just with a camera and obviously having no sort of feedback in terms of obviously previous TED Talks have audience horrible. and stuff. So it's, yeah. Horrible. Absolutely <laughs> horrible. There's no other word for it. Horrible. Um, mainly because you can't time anything. You can't judge if it's working or not. So there are a couple of times in my presentation where I made a rather, I like to think, rather funny asides, just one-liners, just throw them away to keep it, because it was quite a really heavy topic and I wanted to make sure that it, it was delivered with a light touch. And of course, when there's a, with an audience there, you can see if that's working. You can see if people are laughing. You can see if they're at least smiling. When all there are are cameras and a camera crew, the camera doesn't talk back to you and the camera crew are under pain of death. They must not respond to anything because if one of them so much as snickers, it will be caught in the microphone and you have to go back and start again. So the camera crew is sitting there with faces like death and thunder, consciously not responding to anything you're saying. So it's it's a bit like, you know, when you go on a Zoom call and everybody turns their cameras off and all you're doing is talking to 40 or 50 little black squares. Yeah. It's like the live version of that. So it's, you know, it, it's it's even worse because it just sucks the the life and soul out of you. The TEDx team did everything they could to keep it as 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 live as as close to real life as they could, but by god it's hard work. 
Um, the actual 12 minutes is really hard work. Before that is great, after that is hard work, but the actual 12 minutes of delivery is, it's like wading through treacle. Yeah. <laughs> and for the viewers and listeners at home, um, can you just like describe what your talk was about for them? Like I, I know that it was to do with in terms of hearing and responding to bad news. Yeah, well, you've, you've, you've caught it. That's what it was, hearing and responding yeah. to bad news. Uh, there's a lot of research about how to tell people bad news, the best ways to deliver information that people aren't going to want to hear, but there's, there's less stuff about how you respond to it. So if somebody breaks some bad news to you, there are things you can say that will make it worse for them, and there are things you can say that's going to make it better for them. Yeah. That's the plan. And- that's, the, that's, that's what it was about. That's the guts of it. Yeah, and I, I think that was really um, well received in terms of the comments and the feedback and stuff like that in terms of what people had said. And obviously, hopefully in the future, that presentation will be available for people on YouTube to watch and, and, and get a gist of what, you know, the, the sort of your message that you're trying to get across in that presentation. Yeah, we're hoping and expecting, but we can't promise that it's going to be yeah. on the TED website. Yeah. And... Um, in terms of your career as well, like obviously you've been working for over 13 years in terms of presentation and voice skills. And the biggest thing I wanted to sort of delve into today was in terms of what can people do, you know, who have been, you know, during this last year, it's been very difficult for them, obviously being potentially made redundant and stuff like that, having to get back into the job ladder. What are your sort of advices in terms of like, you know, for presentation and vocal skills in terms of helping them get back on the job ladder? For job interviews and things like that, you mean? Is that yes. where you? Yeah. 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 Okay. So even just yeah, yeah, yeah. So the 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 thing to remember is that just because they say no, it doesn't mean you were awful. It just means that you weren't a fit. Um, and there are lots of things you can do to help with the nerves and to do design a presentation, if you like. And you can think of your interview as a presentation. It is just a presentation which is steered by other people's questions which makes it a kind of a series of mini presentations, if you like. They ask a question and you have a presentation as your answer, Um, which means you can design those mini presentations in exactly the same way as I designed a TEDx or designed my really big gigs and that kind of stuff. So the process is exactly the same. You just have to respond to the question in front of you. And the, the best advice I can give people is to try and anticipate what the questions are. And let's face it, you can anticipate the questions, not the actual wording of the questions, but the general tenor of the questions, um, because they'll have given you all that information in advance. They'll, you know, they'll tell you what you need to prepare. They'll tell you what the job is going to entail. Um, and they'll ask, you know, they're going to be asking you about your strengths in this examples of when you did the other and that kind of stuff and you can rehearse and prepare those presentations just like you would prepare any other presentation the way to do it the way that most people i know use and the way that i i train people is to take anything you think that might be even remotely relevant and write it all down one thing at a time on a whole bunch of index cards just one fact, one example, one case study, one whatever on a bunch of index cards, shuffle them, lay them out on a table, and then somewhere to the left-hand side of that or above it or wherever, make your best guesses as to what the questions are going to be. You know, They're going to want to know about when I hashed up and recovered. They're going to want an example of when I did something really well. They're going to want an example of how I can prove that I can do task X. And then you just go index cards, big in a pile, and you shuffle those index cards to put them alongside the questions that you're expecting to get answered. And that means that you've got your best layout of content 
alongside the questions that you're expecting. And then if you discover that you've got a, a potential question with too much data, too much evidence, too much content, and another question that's not got enough evidence and content, you've got the option to go, oh, well, this index card, that could answer two questions. It could answer the question I've got it next to, or it could answer this other question. And you can start to shuffle things around a little bit so that you've got strong content answers for any of the predicted questions that you're going to get. And sure, you are going to get the occasional question that you have just not seen coming. But if you've if you've done interviews and you've not got the job, that tells you the next time you go in for an interview, the kind of questions that you're going to be thinking about. So every quest, every time you do an interview where you don't get a job, it tells you more and more and more about what sorts of things to prepare for the next time. I've made it sound like a horribly complicated system, but basically it's just dump your brain onto index cards, put them in piles depending upon what you think you're going to answer the questions. Yeah, I would agree in terms of the index cards. It's something that I kind of experienced a few years ago where I was going through a period where I was going through a job interview after job interview and I felt like the index cards were something I used to, to use myself and I felt that was something um, beneficial and helped me you know, source a job in the end. Um, but for particular people like in the under 25 category who um, maybe lack confidence in terms of presentation or been able to present themselves well, what would you advise them to do? Because that's been a particular area where there's been a redundancy and, and a struggle for jobs. Like finding It jobs. has, yeah, you're right. Um, and the thing to remember about, about that, there are shed loads of tools and techniques for staying cool, calm and collected under any circumstances. Interviews, presentations, asking for a rise, asking for a date. They all have the same physiological effect upon people and just start running your adrenaline and your noradrenaline and your cortisol and things. A whole bunch of techniques and tools you can remember that you can use. My favorite is one called catch the apple. Uh, just because it's so it's just because it's so simple. So um silly question. Do, do you do I don't know, maybe do you go rock climbing or something along those lines? Have you ever been rock climbing? Yeah I've been rock climbing. Yeah. Okay. You any good? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I'm great, but I've done it before. Okay. Yeah. All right. So imagine you're rock climbing. You're rock climbing without a rope, mm. and there's a move you want to make four feet off the ground, and it's a bit of a tricky move. But you think, sod it. I'm four feet off the ground. I'm going to go for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, and and it works. And you carry on climbing, and now you're forty feet off the ground, and the exact same move. Right. You look at the rock yeah. face. It's exactly the same. The consequences have changed, right? But the actual move on the rock face hasn't changed at all. All that's changed is the consequence of getting it wrong. If you get it wrong, first instance, you look a bit of a fool. If you get it wrong, second instance, you fall 40 feet to your doom, right? But the actual maneuver itself hasn't changed. And it turns out when you're getting interviews, it is not the interview that people get nervous about. It is the consequence of the interview. It's the whether you get the job or not. And and sure enough, those are big consequences. But when you're actually in the interview, what you want to do is concentrate not on whether you're going to get the job or not, not on the consequences, not on whether you're going to fall 40 feet to your doom. (laughs) You just concentrate on make the rock climbing move. You just concentrate on the interview as an interview, as an experience, and ignore and forget about everything else. It's a breathtakingly simple tool, but incredibly powerful because it means you just go, hey, this is just a conversation. So here's a silly example. Here's a really, really silly example. A couple of years ago, I did an interview on Radio 2. 
primetime radio. So we're talking about five and a half million listeners. If I had thought about five and a half million listeners, I would have completely freaked out because, hey, God, five and a half million listeners. Ah. Right? But what I did was go, forget about that. That's the consequence of it. What I'm actually doing is having a simple conversation with one bloke down a telephone line. The consequences of that, you know, if, if the presenter had had five listeners or 50 listeners or 5,000 listeners, or as it turns out, five and a half million listeners, that was, a, that was irrelevant. My job was to concentrate on the conversation I was having at the time, not upon how many people were listening and all of that kind of, all of that kind of jazz. Or the other technique that people find really useful is one called anchoring. Have you come across, come across I've anchoring? I've heard of anchoring before, yeah. Okay. Have you, yeah, it's, it's a... It takes a little practice, but once you've nailed it, it's it's awesome. So the idea is that you find something in your day, every day, that just makes you go, ah. And then every day when that thing happens, that ah moment happens, and it could be, you know, when you get home and see your house or the first gin and tonic on, a, on a, of an evening or, or or when your dog leaps up and says hello or when your children say hello or as a friend of mine said, it's when I get my damn children to bed. It's it, whatever it is. It's that moment when you just go, ah, whenever that happens, you do something. Doesn't matter what it is, almost doesn't matter what it is, but the idea is that eventually you condition yourself so that whenever you do that thing, your R moment happens because you conditioned yourself to respond in exactly the same way. It's basic, really basic Pavlovian classical conditioning. You, you come across Pavlov's dog stories? It's the idea that you come across him now? Train the dogs and ring the bell? No. Okay, so the idea is Russian scientist, don't shoot the messenger here. I'm not advocating <laughs> this. So, uh, Russian scientist experimenting on dog saliva, but it's not going well because you can only collect the saliva twice a day when the dogs salivate when he feeds them. So what he does is he puts stents through the cheeks of the dogs and every time he feeds them, he rings a bell. Feed the dog and ring 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 a bell until eventually the dogs start to salivate whenever he rings the bell because they've been conditioned to expect to be fed. It's exactly the same principle. So when I walk down the corner walk from the metro station and I see my house and I just go, that's ah, a hormonal response, and I do something so that, now I've conditioned myself because I've done that every day for weeks. I've conditioned myself so that whenever I do that thing, whatever that thing is, my equivalent of Pavlov ringing the bell, I have that ah moment of, of just just like seeing my house. And, and what it is that you do, that depends upon you. I mean, my advice is that it's something subtle so the audience don't notice you doing it. I mean, in, in theory, you can you can anchor to standing on one leg and waving your arms in the air, but that's going to look really stupid in an interview. Um, so it wants to be something that you can do really easily the audience aren't going to notice. So mine, for example, is to rub my thumb across the inside of my wedding ring. So whenever I'm feeling kind of, a, whenever I'm feeling nervous or anxious, I rub my thumb on the inside of my wedding ring and my body is conditioned now to physiologically respond with an, ah, like the money supermarket adverts you know money supermarket thing um it's the most powerful of the tools it takes forever to learn it takes weeks to practice it but once you've practiced it it'll stay with you for, for life 
And if people are stuck, there are loads of other techniques that they can learn. But those are the two that most people seem to find most fun and most helpful because one just works like that and the other one anchoring is is really powerful. Yeah, and I'd, I'd like to think that's something I'd like to take away, just something in terms of like just a, a, a sort of a cue to make myself maybe relax. And one thing I've struggled with and I imagine quite a lot of people do struggle with is sort of your nonverbal sort of you know, body language and eye contact. What advice would you give in terms to hold good eye contact or show a positive body, you know, sort of a more of a like um, just a positive body language going into an interview? Oh. Okay, I'm going to get on my high horse and start ranting here. Are you ready? Because there is some oft-cited research suggesting that 93% of, of communication is nonverbal and only 3% of, of your communication is via the words you use. That is utter, absolute tosh. It's a complete and, I would argue, willful misinterpretation of the research. That is not what the research is about. There is no way. Nobody knows, basically, what the actual figures are. And anybody who's pretending it's 3% wants slapping around the face with a wet fish, metaphorically. Or maybe even literally. So the idea of the body language stuff is just to treat the conversation as though it is a conversation. It's exactly the same way as you would talk to your mates. So think, if you want to talk to your mates in the pub, do you remember the days when we could go to the pub and have a conversation? Mm, yeah. <laughs> How would you, what would you do then when you're having a natural conversation? You'd lean forward, you would nod, you would gesticulate. And so it's you do in the interview exactly what you would do if it was not an interview. Now, I know that's easier said than done, but the point is there's no magic trick. There's no silver bullet. There's no thing, that, there's, there's nothing you can go where if you make this gesture... It means such and such. If you make that gesture, it means so and so. Body language doesn't work as, as as crudely as that. The only general sophistications you can make are that you want to hold eye contact reasonably. But again, if you do it for too long, it starts to be intimidating. Yeah. So it, it's it, it's you know go with what feels like for you. Because if I stare at the camera now. Right? Ah, and I'm just staring at the camera, staring at the camera, staring. It just still looks bloody weird, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, I'm either yeah, I'm either asking for a fight or making some kind of sexual. Come on, neither of those things are going to work down a camera, obviously. But that's what it looks like to the, to an audience. So just look at people normally, and then when you've said your piece, look away. And then when somebody else speaks, look at them. Try not to move too much. Try not to wave your hands around unnecessarily. But if gesticulating is going to help with the the thing that you're explaining, then gesticulate. Do what comes natural, unless you are a complete hyperbole, you know, kind of the person that waves their arms around in the air. Um, if you're under those circumstances, the best advice I can give you is to put something in your hand. So find an expensive pair of glasses or whatever, and put them in your hand. Because once you've got something in your hand, it makes you much, much less likely to wave your arms around. Mm -hmm. No, that's really good advice. And and I just want to throw a bit of a variable in, in terms of, obviously, with the last year, it's been very much Zoom and Teams and Skype. What about in terms of if that's your type, having to do your interview through that process? <laughs> oh, God help you. Yeah, one of my kids has just done an hour, done a year's work where she has literally got the done the interview, got the job, done a year's work, left, done an exit interview, and she's physically never met anybody she's working with because it's all been it's all been down the all been down the line. A couple of bits tips. Um minim if you're using Zoom, minimize yourself or ideally turn off your own camera if you if you can, not your camera, turn off your own video feed if you can because inevitably you're gonna start looking at yourself. 
Mm. Um, and I'm doing it now. I'm looking at you, which is weird. What I should be doing is looking at the camera because that's what that's what eye contact looks to. But if I'm looking at you, it looks like I'm not giving you eye contact. Um, so if you can look at the little green dot, put a put an arrow on it or something, a sticky tape or a plaster or a photograph of somebody you love right next to the camera so that it, you look at the camera so that you're looking at eye contact. If you're feeling really confident about it, start to focus maybe a foot or so behind the camera because that's actually where people expect you to be looking in real life. I wouldn't be looking at the camera. I'd be looking maybe three foot past the camera because that's where you would be. Yeah. So if I'm looking at the camera, I'm, fo- I'm, I'm focusing on a space halfway between you and I. Hmm. So if you're feeling really confident about it, focus behind your computer. But honestly, it starts to get unnecessarily complicated at that point because let's face it, the other person is only seeing you on a small screen anyway. So they can't infer a great deal about your body language. Uh, bigger problems are audio problems, background noise, distractions, rocky chairs, all of that. And again, it's not rocket science here. If you've got a squeaky chair, don't move. Or better still, get a different chair. <laughs> it's, it really is not difficult. It's all common sense stuff. The hard part is is remembering to do the common sense stuff. So very often what we talk about for this kind of circumstance is to use a technique called ties and flies. Um, I'll explain the bad joke in ties and flies in a, in a moment or two, but ties and flies is just our in-house term for a checklist. Have you turned off the phone so that it's not going to go bring? Have you checked that your chair is not going to squeak? Have you asked the other person at the far end that your microphone is working properly? Have you got your mouse batteries charged? Have you got a good amount of light on your face from your cat? All of that kind of, just go down, tick, 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 tick. And it does a whole bunch of things. The first is it means that very few things are going to go wrong because anything that could go wrong, you've already checked. And it also makes you much less nervous because there's quite a bit of evidence now that suggests that a great deal of our nerves for presentations comes not from the presentation itself, but from the logistics of the presentation. Now, in the old days when we were face-to-face, that would be things like, am I going to trip off the stage? Am I going to be late? How does my remote clicker work? Have I got the right slides? Is my version of PowerPoint compatible with their computer? And all of those little things make you anxious. But if you've ticked them off, you're not going to get worried about them anymore. The same thing applies here, except your checklist wants to be a checklist for broadcast rather than a checklist for for in the room. And ours is... Ours is really simple. Our setup here is not massively expensive. I'm in a, a converted spare bedroom. Um, I've got two LED lights. I'm only using one because there's daylight coming in the other side. I've got two LED lights, which were $43. Um, I've got a microphone for 100 and something quid, but you don't need that. I've got a headphone set of headphones so that there's no echo. And to my right here, I've got a second monitor, absolute godsend, second monitor, which is actually a salvaged television. We bought a new television. The old television did not go to the charity shop. It got nicked and put upstairs here so that when I'm looking at at the camera, I'm looking at the delivery, I'm just looking at you. I'm just staring now at my audience. And all the chat stuff and all the control stuff is off to the side on a separate screen so I can see it separately all the time, which makes all the world of difference in terms of your confidence to present with slides and things because you don't when you, when you do the screen share and you start presenting with your slides, you don't lose them if you've got a second monitor. 
all of the chat functions and all the other controls stay visible on that second monitor. It's an absolute godsend. And how difficult has it been to deliver virtually through the last year? Uh, I wasn't I wasn't grey when this year started. <laughs> I am now. It's it's varied. It was really easy at the beginning because people were accepting of the fact that quality could be rubbish. So people forgave mistakes because they couldn't cope themselves, so they forgave mistakes from other people. And in the middle, people went, oh, right, we've got time now. We're going to get it right. And then standards went artificially yeah. up, and people started worrying too much about, well, I've got to be seen to look like this, and I've got to stand to look like that. And, I've, and they got the knickers in a twist about a whole bunch of things that don't really impact upon the audience's experience. And now it started to get easier again as people have got more comfortable with the technology and importantly, people have got comfortable not just broadcasting, but they've got comfortable watching things as well. So people have learned how to use Zoom. Yeah. So, for example, I've got you set up so that your screw, your face is big, mine is tiny, but there's another view, the gallery view, where I could have the two side, you know, two faces side by side next to each other. Your screen would be the same size as mine. That's incredibly distracting and I can't watch you properly. But people now have learned how to use Zoom. So they will turn themselves off or shrink themselves or, or whatever. So life has got quite a lot easier. Um, whether it would get harder again if we have to go back into, God help us, another lockdown, I don't know. But I'm desperately hoping we can now start to move back towards live events a little bit more. Do you see it going back to in-person or do you think there'll still be a scope for virtual in terms of less travel, you know, in terms of people who are doing a lot of traveling and this has been kind of a godsend to sort of be able to just do it you know, from home or from an office? Bit of both, bit of both. There's some interesting research now that says that um, maintenance meetings, you know, maintenance meetings, things like reporting and all of that kind of, your bog standard team weekly presentation stuff, maintenance meetings have got more efficient because of Zoom because there's no travel, blah, blah, blah. People hate it, so they just say what they need to say, then shut up and then go back to their working stuff. Right? But anything that requires creativity and collaboration has really taken a hammering during the, during the pandemic when we can't get together virtually. Um, so I'm, my hunch, I mean, it depends how rational we think people are, but my hunch is that we will start to see going back into face-to-face -face meetings for those things which have stagnated during lockdown. New stuff, innovations, strategic stuff, new away days, ways of thinking type stuff where you have to bounce ideas around and all of that kind of jazz. And we may very well stay virtual for you know, the, the weekly team meeting of are you still on timetable? Have you gone over budget? You know, that kind of maintenance stuff that goes on um the stuff that's going to be really hard to predict is going to be the hybrid events because that's the words that people are throwing around at the moment that's where there's going to be some people in the room and some people watching down the wire from a presenter's point of view that's the absolute worst case scenario because the rules for keeping your slides engaging down the wire are that you should change But if you're face-to-face, -face, then you don't change your slides so often. You engage more with more personality with the audience and therefore use fewer slides. It's going to be an absolute nightmare to see how people balance those two things together, unless hybrid events mean that the, the, 
the virtual technology gets so good that people think that they are virtually there as opposed to watching their computer screens in their offices. And that's very interesting to, to discover that those looking into hybrid. It's not something that I've obviously come across. It's good to, to know that there's going to be some sort of scope of potentially a, a different presentation sort of style. Um, and in terms of presentation skills coming from this, what sort of would you be like your sort of five top tips in terms of presentation skills moving from it? Ooh, my five top tips change every time somebody asks me. <laughs> Given the conversation we've just had about interviews and employment and all of that kind of jazz, I think my absolute top tip is to play to win rather than play not to lose. Um, so let's use a football analogy. You can yeah. you can either put all 11 of your team inside your own 22 yards. You are never going to score, but you're going to make it incredibly difficult for the other team to score. But the best you can hope for is as a, a no-score draw. If you want to win, you're going to have to risk opening up your defence and attack every now and again. Think of interviews, think of presentations in general, but interview presentations are particularly like that. There is no point in being defensive because there's no prize for coming second. There's only one job. <laughs> so you're going to have to risk it. You're going to have to, on occasions when you really, really want the job, absolutely stick you know your keeper two defenders and stick everybody else into the opposition half um so you start thinking about your presentation if i want to make maximum impact what would i do which is a very different question to asking yourself if i want to avoid looking like a fool what would i do <laughs> so for example if you want to make maximum impact you might walk on stage with i don't know pick a random prop walk on stage with a penny whistle now, nine times out of 10, people are going to think you look like a pillar for walking on stage with a penny whistle in your job interview. But on that one time out of 10, where you just happen to get it right, you're going to get the job. But if you don't walk on stage and make yourself distinctive, you are never going to get the job. Mm -hmm. So it's a mindset shift, right? Uh, number two, rehearse. That's kind of blindingly obvious, isn't it? Just re But remember that... You know that old adage, practice makes perfect? Yes. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. It's nonsense. What practice does is practice makes permanent, mm. which is different. So if you're practicing something wrong, you're making it permanently wrong. So we talk very much about rehearsing rather than practicing. So the rehearsal process is to find the bits that are working and rehearse those until they can't go wrong, until it's done on autopilot. But find those bits that aren't working and do them very slowly so that you get them right and then gradually get them faster and faster and faster. A bit like playing a musical instrument. You know, you don't play the whole piece. You just play the bars, the little bits that are difficult, and you, you practice those over and over and over and over. But the thing that people always forget to practice is the tech. Yeah. And that's the one that... So I've got jobs. I've got jobs purely on my ability to handle the tech. Because what's happened is I've come in, I've plugged my computer in, I've had my laptop, or it helps that I've got a Mac, so most of it is kind of automatic for me. But I've plugged in the HDMI cable, and I've been ready to give my presentation within about 10 seconds of walking in the room. Other people have walked in and gone, uh, how, where does this, uh, where, where's the cable, uh, 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 yeah, plug that, uh, uh, plug in. And by the time you've done that, the audience 
the interviewers, this is, have lost faith in your ability to be competent. Because and I, I know that the ability to plug in your laptop doesn't mean you're a good or a bad accountant. I get that. But that's not the way people think. They think if you cannot handle your laptop, you will not be able to handle your spreadsheets. There's no logic to that, but that's the way people tend to work. So rehearse, 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 and rehearse a tech. Um, tip number three, ignore the chair fillers. What are the chair fillers? Well, in any given presentation, interviews included, there's going to be three types of people in the room. There's the decision makers, there's the people that influence the decision makers, and there's the biggest group of people in the room, numerically, the chair fillers. Those are the people who are there for the free tea and biscuits. And what novice presenters do is they start presenting to the chair fillers because they are numerically the most important bunch of people in the room. Actually, you can ignore them because decision-making-wise, nobody cares what the chair fillers think. What you have to do is impress the, the decision-maker. So silly example, working in Manchester um, a while ago, Manchester, football crazy city. It is. Yeah, in Manchester, I started telling stories about Liverpool Football Club. Everybody in the room is a Manchester United fan, apart from a couple of people who are Manchester City fans, and one other person who happened to be, I know, because I'd stalked him, he was the decision-maker and a Liverpool fan. Liverpool fan. Yeah. Now, the fact that I hacked off all the Manchester fans in the room, nobody cares, because the only person in the room whose opinion mattered was a Liverpool fan. So you can ignore everybody except the decision-makers. Um, tip four, uh, dance with your slides. Um, don't put your data on your slides. No one's going to remember the data. What you put on your slides is stuff that gets them excited enough to want the data, and you give them the data later. Um, uh, and the last one, I think, is probably a tech tip. Um, always use a level of technology below what you are able to do so that you've got a safety margin for when things go wrong. A, a presentation, an interview, or whatever, is not the place to experiment with brand new technology. Um, you know, that's, that's stuff that you do in the safety of your own home. When, when the crunch is down, um, you go for playing it safe and you come down one level of, one level of risk. And can I sneak in a sixth one? Yeah, six of tip out of five. Uh, um, go for jobs and go for interviews that you don't want, because that's that's practice. <laughs> you know, if the only jobs that in the only interviews that you go for are the ones that matter to you, then not getting them is a pretty steep, a pretty expensive learning curve. But if you go for jobs where you walk into the interview thinking, "If I get this job, I'm going to turn it down anyway." then that gives you the opportunity to practice your presentation skills and your interview skills without any consequence. Okay, so there are, some, you know, a silly example, if you, if you go for a networking meeting, for example, as a baker, and you're in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, where I am, uh, try, try your networking skills in Brighton. Nobody from Brighton is going to come to Newcastle for a, for a loaf of bread. So if you screw up, it doesn't matter. So you can practice on those occasions where it, where it doesn't matter. Go for jobs you hate. Go for jobs you know you're not going to get. Go for jobs where you think, I wouldn't work here if they paid me a million. 
you know, if they paid me a million pounds, I'd work in an awful lot of places. But you get the, you know, you get yeah. the idea. Um, just go for stuff that does not matter to you. So you can practice, so that you can play, so that you can feel what it feels like when you just don't care. And you can learn the craft of being interviewed and the craft of presenting when there are no consequences. Mm, them like six tips are certainly something for people to take away from this. And obviously touching on what we have discussed earlier in terms of your presentation, in terms of you know dealing with bad news and, and obviously in terms of being rejected in a job, you know, what how do can people build sort of an emotional resilience to them sort of things in terms of being given bad news or given, you know, the news right. that they've not got the job? How can how can yeah, they be resilient it. enough to move forward from that? It, it feels like the end of the world, doesn't it? When you've gone for a job and you want it and, and, and you don't get it. I, I completely understand that. The trick is to remember that, I say the trick, as though as, as though I've got a silver magic bullet that's going to cure all things. But one of the tricks is to remember that 95% of your life is still great. It doesn't feel like it because the 5% of your life that you're thinking about at that time, I haven't got the job, sucks but the rest of your life is okay. So one thing you can do is keep a diary or a record in some way, shape or form of whenever your day is okay. It doesn't have to be great. You don't have to cure cancer. It just has to be okay. And you keep a record of that so that on Friday, let's say, when your life absolutely sucks, and you just think that God hates you and the universe is out to get you, and you look at your your day and your week and you go, oh, it's awful, everything's crap, and yada, 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 and you go, you've got a physical proof reminder that actually it was only Friday that sucked. Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, I can't go backwards on the days of the week, but you get the idea. They were all okay. It's just one day in five. But the way our brains work is that we are evolutionarily designed to focus on the bad stuff. It's a survival instinct because bad stuff might have killed us back in the day. So we focus on the bad stuff. We obsess about the bad stuff. So pretty much all positive psychology trainers will tell you is to find a way of putting that bad stuff in the context of the the overview of, of what's good. So I use um, a little app called the 5-Minute Journal. I've heard of that, it, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I don't do the proper journaling bit of it, but all I do with it is I take one photograph per day of something cool in the day. It might be playing with my kids. It might be walking on the beach. It might be a bumblebee on a flower. It might be a nice bit of feedback I've got. So there's quite a few of TEDx, for example, where I've got some awesome feedback, um, quite a few days of that. So when you know, I kind of go, oh, man, life absolutely sucks, I can just look at this app on my phone and I've got, a complete list of days where something cool happened. It might just be a photograph of a takeaway coffee cup to remind me of going for a walk on a beach with a mate, which was just the highlight of my week this week, because let's face it, getting out and doing something in the sun as opposed to being locked down is a, is a great thing. So the idea is that you put the bad stuff in, in context. Or you could do things like, uh, make a point of, of treating it as a learning opportunity. Yes, it sucks. So wallow, get hippo time, as a friend of mine, Paul McGee, would call it. Wallow and sulk and then say to yourself, okay, I felt sorry for myself for enough time now. 
what can I do? What can I learn from this? So we use something called the Rolf methodology quite a lot, R-O-L-F-E. And it's simply to ask yourself the question, what, three times. What happened? So what were the effects of that? Now, what can I do about it? So, you know, I made this mistake, which means I didn't get the job. And what I can do about it next time is do that thing differently. So you start to treat the feedback of you've not got the job straight away it becomes something different it is now no longer just a shock of you've not got the job it is also part of your education process your learning process and you go okay so next time i know what to do differently um, but we we love the rolf methodology here because it's so damn simple i mean there are better ways of doing reflective practice and learning of yourself but that is such a simple one what happened so what were the consequences now what can i do about it and you just you turn the bad news into a learning opportunity. Yeah, and, and how, how would you sort of document that? Like obviously you mentioned before there about gratitude and, and documenting, you know, remembering the good times, but what would you do in terms of sort of just on a reflective practice, what would you do just to jot that Ideally, down? Ideally, you'd write it down. Yeah. For, for anybody who's listening rather than looking at it, um, I've got an Evernote um, notepad there writing it down that just the, the act of writing it down fixes it in your head you may very well never go back and look at the damned notebook ever again but the process of writing it in the notebook fixes it in your head quite nicely that's the ideal way second best is to tell somebody else third best is to consciously take some time for yourself and think it through it's better than nothing. It's, it's one of the reasons that, for example, people with a strong religious faith tend to be healthier and happier mentally than people without. Because one of the things they do is pray. And the process of praying is a conscious, Christians like me would regard it as a communication with God, but whatever it is, whether it is or not, it is a conscious time when you sit down and you think actively and with intentionality rather than just letting the day pass you by. And what would you do in terms of um, sort of same thing in terms of like you, you obviously touched on in terms of the negative comments and stuff. What would you do in terms of feedback for those who may have done a presentation and it's not gone as planned and you, you start having that sort of negative response to that sort of thing? So, so something, <laughs> you know, it oh, might be a technical. Yeah. Yeah, that's just... never happened to me. No, that's <laughs> never happened to me that the presentation's gone belly up. No, okay. It's exactly the same principle. Yeah? What went yeah. wrong? Why did it go wrong? What went wrong? Uh, and what can I do? So a silly example, um, we now carry, or I now carry, a 25-meter extension cable with me because on one occasion, the only place to plug in the laptop was at the back of the room. So that's what went wrong. What were the consequences of that? The consequences of that were that I couldn't see my next slide on the on the laptop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and and what, if, if you've ever used Presenter View, you begin to realize exactly how much you rely upon seeing the next slide before the audience sees it. So what happened was I had to plug my laptop in at the back of the room. What were the consequences of that? I didn't know what my next slide was going to be until it turned upon the So what can you do about that? You buy yourself a 25-meter extension cable so that the next time it happens, it's, you know, you've got it, you've got it sussed. Um, or maybe you tell a story that didn't work. Okay, I told the story, it didn't work, it offended somebody, what can I do? I can find a story that has the same meaning, the same weight, the same principle, but doesn't offend people. 
It's not difficult to do that. All you have to do is just sit down in the bar or the cafe or whatever after your gig, after your presentation, and consciously reflect on it. Don't just think to yourself, oh, I'll remember this in ten, five days' time, because trust me, you won't. I've been doing this for like well over a decade now, and as soon as you're out of the venue, your life starts to, to happen to you again. So you, you, you put into your diary immediately after the gig self-reflection time. So I've got my diary set up now, so it automatically does a number of things. If I tell it I've got a gig at 9.30, it will do a whole bunch of things, one of which is at 8.30, it will say, check your technical setup, Simon, and get online, yada, yada, yada. And then I tell it when I expect the gig to finish. Let's say it finishes at half past 10, 11 o'clock. There'll be a 15-minute break so I can have a cup of tea and coffee, and it will automatically put in my diary 20 minutes of reflection time. Now, I may not need 20 minutes, and hand on heart, I don't always do it <laughs> because, well, because life, but as a general tool, as a general principle, you should always book in your self-reflection at the same time as you book in the gig, or you get the idea. Life gets in the way. Sure, of course it does. You're never ever going to manage it all the time, but if you can, something is better than nothing, and a little bit of self-discipline to put it in the diary is a huge plus. Yeah, I, that's just the, the preparation thing there, what you've just said, like just preparing just an hour before, making sure things are checked and, and even having that time prepared to to reflect upon this sort of your presentation and giving yourself that time, I think is is vital for, for to see some sort of improvement in terms of that. I think that's really... Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah. what that will do though, that will, that will allow you to figure out how the presentation itself went. What it won't do is allow you to figure out whether the presentation worked or not. And that's a big thing that we go on about a lot because you don't measure the success of a presentation by whether you've got a standing ovation or not. They're nice, but let's give you two hypotheticals here. Right? You walk off stage, you sit down, you get a standing ovation, and everybody tells you, that was absolutely awesome. And then nobody does anything with what you said. Yeah. Or you walk off stage, you get a polite round of applause, and people go, oh, I was all right, you know, not too shabby. But at the end of the presentation, they rush back to their offices and they do something with what you have given them. Which of those two is more impactful? One's, one's a great ego trip, but one is a better thing for the world. You've changed the world. Now, going back to this idea of reflective practice, just sitting there for 20 minutes after your presentation won't tell you whether you've had an impact on the world, all it will tell you is whether you delivered it well. Yeah. You have to take some time subsequently, weeks later maybe, to think about did that actually do any good? And that's much harder to measure. So, for example, in the, la the, the, the TEDx that you, you, you saw me do, I got loads and loads and loads of awesome feedback. And people go, awesome, the best thing I've seen, fantastic. I don't care. It's nice. It's nice. But what I want is for the people who saw it to remember that tasks model that I gave people so that the next time somebody gives them bad news, they deal with it in a better way. That's, the, that's a better measure for me of whether the presentation was successful or not. Yeah, in terms of feedback, you want to be able to just get some, you know, say, what's one thing that they can remember from it or two or three and, and been able to use that? I think that, how would you, in terms of getting that feedback from them, is it, 
I know obviously people use Typeform and, and SurveyMonkeys, but obviously that's not always the perfect way of, of getting that sort of message across. It's awful. I mean, part of Typeform and SurveyMonkeys, you get what's called the Hawthorne effect. As soon as somebody asks you the question, your answer changes because you've been asked the question. So if I say to you, was my presentation good or not? You're going to say, yes, it was good. The fact that I have asked you that question means you're going to say yes. So that kind of feedback form is just a ticky box thing to keep people to keep people happy. Um, it, it, some of the old research on this is quite fun. It's kind of things like, um, do you feel stressed ever, David? Is that, is that something that, that goes through your life? Do you, do you feel a level of stress in your life ever? And what happens is that people go, well, I didn't. But now that you've asked me the question, <laughs> I'm suddenly stressed. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, it's one of the things that medics call it white coat syndrome, for example. Um, as soon as a doctor starts to take your blood pressure, the very act of a doctor taking your blood pressure puts your blood pressure up. Um, so the very act of somebody saying, was my presentation good, changes the answer that you're, that you're going to get. So the metrics you want to use need to be set up well before the presentation. So if your presentation is about, for example, the new child protection policy in your organization, the success metrics that you need to be setting up are how many people start to use the child protection protocols that you've just told them about. Does everybody use them? In which case your presentation was a success. Does nobody use them? In which case your presentation was an unmitigated failure. Do half of people use them? In which case your presentation was okay, but not great. So what you do is you, you, you look for and you measure what it is you were trying to change in your presentation. And I know that that is hard work. I know it's hard work, but it's the only way to find out if your presentation was genuinely successful because successful and good, I mean, they overlap, but they're not the same thing. That's, that's depressing, isn't it? Depressing. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to ask you a few final questions. I've not kind of sent this to you already, but what does it mean ah! to be human? A successful human or just a human? What does it mean just to be a human? Like, just a human? Every human I have ever met is uncertain, anxious, and nervous about whether they're doing the right thing and what the meaning of life is. So for me, being human is a continual state of borderline hysterical anxiety. <laughs> uh, and we are graced occasionally with moments of certainty. Was that sufficiently philosophical and, and vague yeah. for her? <laughs> and lastly, I'd love to ask you is um, what makes you stay humble? Have you seen the feedback my daughters give me? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, I, I spent 24 years as a research scientist. I, I did a PhD in medical geography and then I spent 24 years as a research scientist it's pretty damned easy to stay humble as a research scientist and it gets to be a habit because you become more and more and more acutely aware of everything you do not know. Um, there's a, a, a something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which basically says that the less you know about something, the more likely you are to think that you can do it. 
Um, but the more gifted you are at something, the less likely you are to get arrogant about it. I mean, there are exceptions to every rule, but by and large, experts, people who are really good at stuff, tend to find it easier to stay humble because they recognize that they're not as good as they want to be. You know, you could be a great actor. And one of the best things about being a great actor is that you realize that there's always more to learn and that you don't know it all. So it's quite easy. As a research scientist, you go, yeah, I know I know more about this topic than everybody else. But all that tells me is exactly how little I know compared to how much there is out there to know. As a presenter, yes, I know a very great deal about how to make good presentations. But what that tells me more than anything else is how little I actually know in terms of how to do it perfectly. I'm better than everybody else, but that does not mean that I've got it sus. There's there's so much more that everybody can learn. I've never come across that before, so that's something. Well, the Dunning Kruger effect. The Dunning Kruger effect, yeah. and I've not come across it, so I'll definitely uh, investigate that. Um, and yeah, Simon, yeah. I just wanted to give you sort of a platform now in terms of where can people sort of, if they want to reach out for you in terms of some presentation skills or voice coaching skills, where do they need to look for you? Uh, PresentationGenius.info is the place to start. Um, and if you want to get on the newsletter, which is probably the best way, because I, I send what I like to think is useful stuff um, on a weekly basis. It's it's not always useful and it's not always weekly because life gets in the way. Yeah. Um, so if you go to presentationgenius.info slash high, presentationgenius.info slash high, they can sign up for the newsletter and that will give them stuff in their inbox. And if they want to talk to me personally after that, they can drop me a line and I will always, always, always reply to every email that I get. As long as it's not abusive, you know, but even then I might. Um but if it's if it's just a how do I do this, then I'll I'll see what I can do about that. And I will uh, make sure that they're in the podcasting notes as well for people, so they'll be easier cool. accessed as well. But thank, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. I certainly think that this podcast will help someone in terms of helping them get in sort of the job ladder or improve their presentation skills or even just nonverbal communication. I think the 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 advice that you've given this podcast has been really beneficial. You're very welcome, and thank you very much for saying so. It's very kind of you. Uh, Thank you for uh, staying humble with me, Sam Raybould. You're welcome.